I wanted to talk this evening about cultivating rapture or cultivating joy. Joy or rapture uh, is one of the uh, qualities of mind that is part of the seven factors of enlightenment. What um, those who have um, come to enlightenment have found is that seven factors have to be in balance in order for the mind to open. And those are mindfulness, effort or energy, rapture or joy, concentration, calm, and equanimity. So, um, so cultivating joy and or cultivating this rapturous joy is not actually only um, the in the experience, but it actually is an important constituent on this path of opening that we um, are journeying. Um, to I don't say journeying towards, but where where we are inviting the conditions for this energy to come into being. In the um, Vitaka Santana Sutta, in the middle, um, in the middle um, length discourses, the Buddha talked about how to work with difficult thoughts. And the very first thing that he said in terms of working with difficult thoughts is replace them. When you notice a thought that is difficult, that is, when you notice a thought whose outcome is to feed desire or delusion or aversion, hate or irritation or any of the unwholesome factors, when you notice thinking that feeds it or supports it or um, in any way um, increases those energies, then just replace those with thoughts that create the conditions for wholesome qualities to arise. And uh, um, apart from one of the, el the 11 ways to develop rapture, there's, um, apart from one, the first one, all of the ways are contemplation. They all actually, weigh, uh, um, they, they're invitations to cultivate particular ways of thinking and to contemplate particular subject areas. So um, I have said to you in this retreat, <laughs> drop thinking, drop thinking, just cut thinking. Actually, there is skillful thinking, and skillful thinking is the second of the um, links in the Eightfold Path. First there's right understanding, and then there's right intentional right thought. Actually, right understanding and right thought constitute the wisdom factors of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path says this is the path to walk on, and the, the beginning two, which actually become the end two also, are right understanding and right thinking. The, the um, training in cultivating joy in our lives, interestingly enough, apart from the first training, is around right thinking or contemplating thoughts 
that give rise to joy, to a, a rapturous joy, which is the um, which is a delight in the experience that we're having in the moment. And rapture has the quality of pervading all the cells and all the mind states with this sense of delight and joy, and actually a deep sense of comfort in in um, in the moment. Um, <laughs> it, it's um, uh, two of the other qualities, really strong qualities when joy becomes um, fully developed, is an incredible lightness of being. When joy, when um, this delighted interest in life um, gets strong, it feels as though we're almost floating on air. On, on air. It's, that's how light we feel. It's this incredible lightness of being and malleability of being and agility of being, not actually only in the body, but in the mind as well. So, um, so I wanted to start with this poem by Mary Olver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else? should I have done? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That's the poem about rapturous joy. That delighted interest where you know either a grasshopper could come and land on your on your hand and you could say, yes, you know. <laughs> or a grasshopper could come and land and there can be that delighted interest. Wow, look at those eyes. Look at that jaw moving and how it's eating the sugar. Oh, look how it flaps its wings and now it's floating away. That, that interest, that wise attention to the experience is actually the first cultivation, the first condition for rapturous joy to arise. So this morning when I said to you, see what the details of your breath are, or what they, what they were. What, what is it that's happening at the very beginning to the middle, to the end of your in-breath? When do your thoughts come? That detailed attention is the condition for joy. To begin and cultivate an interest in your experience. The same with pain. When I said if pain arises, notice if it's sharp and shooting. 
one can actually experience joy in the experience of pain. So remember I said I came back from the dentist and I needed the through canal and, and, um, and that I was in this pain. And then I said, <laughs> you don't need to feel sorry for me. I feel fine. Awakened interest in the experience provides joy or gives rise to joy. And so joy is there in, in the direct experience of the qualities like the grasshopper's jaw moving in the qualities of pain or in the qualities of the breath. It doesn't matter what your experience is. So just paying wise attention to our experience, whatever our experience is, can bring about um, this quality of joy. Um, for the last couple of nights, I have felt very moved, I'm not quite sure why, of um, talking about the Buddha and the Buddha's life. Um, when I first came to this uh, practice for probably the first seven or eight or even ten years, I wasn't that interested in the Buddha's life. I was really interested in how to work with my own crazy mind and certainly what would bring about rapturous joy. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the Buddha actually seemed very far away from that. As, as I have um, continued to practice, I have felt actually more and more inspired by the Buddha. And so I want to read you um, the story of um, Samedo, who actually became the Buddha after it said, um, uh, let's see, it was um, after a period of a hundred, after a period of four incalculable um, eons, no, four incalculable periods and a hundred thousand eons. So there was this guy made up um, before these four incalculable periods and a hundred thousand eons. <laughs> so um, this, this is how the story goes. The Buddha, this is the Buddha before Gautama, the Buddha Dipankara of ten powers, while on his wanderings in due succession, accompanied by 4,000 arahants, that's fully enlightened beings, reached the city of Ramaka and took up his residence in the great monastery Sudasana. Rising from their seats, the people in the city invited him to a meal the following day, and he went away. On the following day, having prepared sumptuous arms and decorated the city, they prepared the road for the Buddha throwing earth where water had eroded it away, and thereby making the surface even, and sprinkling sand as white as layers of silver. They strewed fried grain and flowers, hoisted banners and streamers made of cloth dyed in many colors, and placed arches of banana trees and rows of jars filled to the brim of water. At that time, the ascetic Sumedha rising from his hermitage and proceeding to the spot where these people were at work, saw them joyful and glad, and wishing to investigate, wise attention, its cause, and standing on one side, asked them, Friends, for whom do you decorate this road? The people replied, Venerable Sumedha, do you not know that Dipankara, the lord of the ten powers, who has attained perfect enlightenment and set rolling the wheel of Dharma, is residing in the great monastery, Sudasana, 
having reached our city on his tours. We have invited the Blessed One for meals and we decorate the route that the Buddha will take. The ascetic Sumedha thought, the very sound of the word Buddha is rare in this world, more so the appearance of a Buddha. It behooves me to join with these folks in clearing the road the Lord of Ten Powers will take. He then told these people, if friends, you are decorating this road for the Buddha, give me also a section so that I will be able to decorate the road along with you. And so, Sumedha says, they granted me as well a portion of the path to clear. Clearing it within my heart, Buddha, Buddha, did I repeat. But before my path was yet complete, Dipankara, the mighty sage, the conqueror, came along that way with a throng of arahants, one to super-knowledge, having destroyed all pollution's taints. The people then their greetings gave, and many kettle drums were beat, and women and guards in joyous mood loud shouted their applauding cries. Then, loosened I my matted hair, and spreading out upon the mud my dress of bark and cloak of skin, I laid me down upon my face, let now on me the Buddha tread. With the disciples of his train, can I but keep him from the mire, to me great merit shall accrue. Putting his water pot to one side and spreading out his robe on the ground, he threw himself down at the feet of the exalted one and wiped the soles of them with his hair. And then he conceived this thought. May I too, in some future time, become a Tathagata, a tathagata an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, as this exalted Dipankara now is. So may I set rolling the incomparable wheel of Dharma, as, thou, as does now the exalted Dipankara. So may I preserve a body of disciples in harmony. So may all deem me worthy to be heard and believed. Having thus crossed, may I lead others across. Freed, may I free others. Comforted, may I comfort others, as this exalted one does. May I thus become, for the happiness and welfare of everyone, out of compassion for the world, for the sake of the great multitude, the happiness and welfare of all. I feel so deeply moved by an ordinary person meeting a Buddha and saying, I resolve to become a Buddha. That means really not just saying I'm going to put myself in a retreat for two and a half days and then I'm going to go home. It says, I resolve to become totally free, totally free of all unwholesome qualities of mind. Not only do I resolve to become totally free of all unwholesome qualities of mind, but I dedicate myself lifetime after lifetime after lifetime for a hundred thousand eons and four incalculable periods. So we're talking major effort here. <laughs> <laughs> I dedicate myself 
to perfecting the ten perfections. The perfections of mind are generosity, morality, renunciation, do you all remember? Patience, persistence, truthfulness, wisdom, loving-kindness, and equanimity. It, it, it is extraordinarily inspiring to think of someone like you or me saying, because there is so much suffering in the world and because I want to free beings from suffering, I, I relentlessly make the effort to perfect myself. And so this actually is one of the contemplations we're invited to in um, cultivating joy, is to, cult is to contemplate the virtues of the Buddha, to contemplate what he had to do to become a Buddha, and that, that incredible commitment to those beautiful qualities of mind. So the first contemplation is the practice of wise attention. The second is contemplating the Buddha, the virtues of the Buddha. The third is contemplating the Dharma. The Dharma is made up of three pillars, generosity, stability of mind, and wisdom. Contemplate for a moment the really wonderful, the blessings of generosity and the practice of generosity and what it does for opening the mind. Contemplate the blessings of the stability of mind, what it's felt like when we've had a concentrated mind and what our lives would be like without having any concentration. I mean, we, that's mental illness. Mental illness is having no ability to focus, no ability to be present, certainly not much ability to be aware, to see clearly. The, the blessings of the pillars of the, and the practice of the Dharma are really the difference between incredible suffering and amazing joy and clarity of being. Cultivating joy is actually beginning to look at the times in our life when we have had mental stability, when we've had those moments of deep peace and remembering them, re-conjuring them up and taking them like we did for the meta meditation, we took a phrase, but now we're taking a time in our life where we had stability or peace of mind and we contemplated the benefits of it, what this brought me in my life, the, the pleasure of it, the, um, the wholesome characteristics of it, how that stability of mind became the condition for other wholesome characteristics to grow. And then contemplating the be benefits of mindfulness and wisdom. Every Christmas, I send some. Um, I send a hundred dollars to Saver. I don't know if you know Saver. Saver is an organization that was originally made up of um, 
some of the early people who were involved in bringing the Dharma to um, the West, Ramdas and Murabai Bush and um, Wavy Gravy, who was a co-owner in uh, Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream and um, certain other people. And um, they got involved in, in their travels in the East. They were struck at how many people were blind and how many people were unnecessarily blind because all it would take is an operation of $35 to give someone sight. And so they were moved to create this organization whose mission was to give people sight. And they came back here and started to fundraise. And it has always struck me that just for $35, I could actually give someone sight. And the profound gift of being blind and then being able to see. And so that seems like um, it's the greatest Christmas gift I give someone every year. Actually, we, we give two people that every year, or however much $100 gives some. It's a bit more expensive for a child. An adult is $35. A, a child is a little more money. And that's how I feel about the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom. It's the difference of being blind and then suddenly being able to see. One cannot even begin really to put into words that difference of living in darkness and then suddenly being able to see. That's what wisdom does in our lives. Because even though we can see with our eyes, we actually are not being able to see clearly. In the question and answer period, one of you talked about projection as um, one of the constituents of ego. Wisdom cuts projection because we are not actually seeing things as they are. We are seeing them through our projection. So we're actually seeing a world that is quite distorted. And if you can't see clearly the world, if you can't see clearly your path, then how do you get to where you want to go? You can't. That's the blindness that we all experience. And the Buddha's definition of our lives is blindness. He says the root cause of our unhappiness is our blindness, is that we cannot see clearly. And so when we contemplate our efforts at being mindful, and when we contemplate as we deepen in this practice, the moments, the many moments of clear seeing where we see, oh, oh, that's what's going on. Oh, that's the thought I have about this. Wow. One begins to see that the blessings of the Dharma, that the blessings of clear seeing are immeasurable. And that when the Buddha said, take all the jewels of all the royalty of Forget royalty now, take the guy, what's his name, who heads Microsoft, the richest man on earth. Take Gates' billions of dollars, you know, as though he was carrying suitcases of them and it was all laid out on this hillside. <laughs> Nothing, not all that money compares to the blessings of seeing clearly, of having sight and being able to see clearly. So that the... Um, the a third contemplation is the contemplation of our lives and what they would be like without generosity, without stability of mind, and without that ability to see. 
and then how those energies light up our lives and contemplating their light and blessings. It's so, it's so beautiful. It's, you know, I mean, that's why I go around traveling and um, um, <laughs> when, you get the, when you really get the taste and the touch, and I know many of you already have felt the taste and the touch of Dharma, there's, it's like someone could burn you and someone could torture you and there's no way you'd ever let it go. And that's actually the story I wanted to say uh, to talk about next. Um, because uh, I was very moved by um, this Tibetan woman who had been imprisoned in a Chinese internment camp in Tibet. And she, like many Dharma practitioners, were tortured. And she was tortured for 20 years. And um, when she got to um, Dharamsala in India, um, a Westerner had met her and felt profoundly moved by her story and wrote a book about her, which is now out. My memory is so awful, which I now forget um, what it was called. But um, I think it's by her name is Lamy Panchen. And um, uh, Lem, Lem, Lemda Panchen, that was her name. Lemda Panchen. So the, the author says to her, the woman writing the book about her life, how did you survive 20 years of torture in this prison camp? Uh, how come you just didn't give up or go totally nuts, which is what a lot of people um, do in those conditions? And she said, this is what she says, I didn't have to think. I knew the answer so well, the wish to see His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And the author, uh, the woman interviewing her says, and there were other things. My lamas taught me that praying day and night with steadfast and unquestioning faith, one will be rewarded with the blessings of the Dharma. Every night, every day, I prayed to the three refuges to guide me. I prayed to my teachers to protect me. I prayed to take on the suffering of others. Let me suffer so they won't have to, I prayed. And I, I um, felt again this other woman's description and expression of her deep love for the Dharma, that no matter what the conditions outside of her, she She was so touched by the Dharma that not for one minute was she unshakable in her faith. That she knew where the true blessings lay. And can you imagine the conditions that she lived in and how easy it would have been to get into hate and blame? How easy it would have been to get into revenge? We just have to think about the last time we were angry and how easy when someone did something we didn't like and how our minds automatic, automatically went into anger and revenge and hate, you know. I just spent a reunion with my mother and sisters up in Vancouver and it was lovely, it was very lovely. And then on the second from last day, my mother said something to me that was so painful. 
And I immediately went into hatred. I just immediately went into hatred. And it was okay. I, I, I feel very um, safe in my deepest commitment to the precepts. I certainly never said anything to her. I understood that a very deep place inside of me um, was triggered by what she said and that that hate was really a defense of the incredible pain that was inside of me. And I knew, and I just knew, even though I had this incredible hate, I just also, like um, Lamy Panchen, felt unshakable in my commitment to work through my own feelings and not to blame, not to blame her for what she said, not to blame any outside circumstance, but to know that really our deepest healing and the most valuable resource is the practice of the Dharma and our faith in the Dharma. So that even when someone we're so close to, like our mother, says something that, is, that can be extraordinarily painful, even in the movement of the mind to hate, that part inside of us that is so deeply committed that says, I stand through this as well. There have been times, like her, when my mind has um, been in a, in, um, it felt, it felt like unworkable state, so unmalleable, so heavy, that all I've been able to do is to look at a picture of my teachers and contemplate their virtue, just to look at, the, at them and to know I don't have it but in that moment, but here is someone who does that there are beings in the world who have purified themselves deeply and they live in the deepest compassion as, uh, as, um, as a place where we can put faith. And that is the, um, that's the fourth contemplation of joy, is to contemplate the virtues of the Sangha, of the people and the teachers that we know who exemplify this deepest commitment to the Dharma. The fifth one is considering our own virtue. And I love this one. We've already, we've already talked about how easy it is to get down on ourselves, how easy it is not to see and acknowledge our own virtues and our own strengths. This is a legitimate way to contemplate what is really beautiful about ourselves, to really think about the different things we've done that we know were skillful and healing. So um, I wanted to read you the story about someone's journey into um, um, opening from despair. This is from uh, Rachel Neman's book, The Blessings of My Grandfather. One of my former patients, Josh, is a gifted cancer surgeon who had sought help because of depression. A highly disillusioned and cynical man, he was thinking about early retirement. I can barely make myself get out of bed most mornings, he told me. I hear the same complaints day after day. I see the same diseases over and over again. I just don't care anymore. I need a new life. Yet, through his extraordinary skills, he had given that to many hundreds of others. 
I sometimes suggest to people like Josh that they review the events of their day for 15 minutes every evening, asking themselves three questions and writing down the answers to these questions in a journal. The three questions are, what surprised me today? What moved or touched me today? What inspired me today? Often these are busy people and I tell them that they do not need to write a great deal. The key thing is in reliving their day from a new perspective and not the amount they write. I asked Josh if he would like to try this as an experiment. He was, less, he was dubious, less expensive than Prozac, I told him. He laughed and agreed to try. I was not surprised to hear from him in a few days. He sounded irritated on the phone. Rachel, he said, I've done this now for three days, and the answer is the same, nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I don't like to fail at things. Is there a trick to this? <laughs> I laughed. Perhaps you're still looking at your life in the old ways, I told him. Try looking at the people around you as if you were a novelist, a journalist, or maybe a poet. Look for the stories. There was a brief silence. Right, he said. I sighed. At first, the most surprising thing in a day was that a cancer had grown or shrunk two or three millimeters. And the most inspiring thing was that a new or experimental drug had begun to work. But gradually, Josh had begun to see more deeply. Eventually, he saw people who had found their way through great pain and darkness by following a thread of love people who had sacrificed part of their bodies to affirm the value of being alive, people who had found ways to triumph over pain, suffering, and even death. In the beginning, he told me, he would notice only the things that surprised him or inspired him several hours after they happened, in the evening of the privacy of his home. It was like one of those fairy tales, he said, like being under a spell. I could only see life by looking backwards over my shoulder. But gradually, this lag time became shorter and shorter. I was building up a capacity I had never used. But I got better at it, he told me. Once I began to see things at the time they actually happened, a lot changed for me. I was puzzled. What do you mean, I asked him. The first patient he spoke to in this different way was a 38-year-old woman with ovarian cancer who had undergone major abdominal surgery, followed by a very debilitating chemotherapy. In the midst of a routine follow-up visit one morning, he suddenly saw her for the first time, her four-year-old on her lap and her six-year-old leaning against her chair. Both little girls were shiny, clean, well-fed, happy, and obviously well-loved. Aware of the profound suffering caused by her sort of chemotherapy, he was deeply moved by the depth of her commitment to mother her children, and for the first time he connected it to the strength of her will to live. After they spoke of her symptoms, he had commented on this. You're such a great mother to your kids, he told her. Even after all you've been through, there's something very strong in you. 
I think that power could maybe heal you someday. She smiled at him, and he realized with a shock that he had never seen her smile before. Thank you, she told him warmly. That means a lot to me. He was very surprised at this, but he believed her. Encouraged, he began to ask other people one or two questions he had not been taught to ask in medical school. What has sustained you in dealing with this illness? Where do you find your strength? You see, things that he really wanted to hear about, in some way what they said was true for him too as he struggled to deal with the difficulties of his own life. I knew cancer very well, but I did not know people before, he told me. He has always been a superb surgeon whose outcome data are remarkable. But in the past few months, for the first time, people have begun to thank him for their surgery, and some have even given him gifts. He sat in silence for a few moments, and then he reached into his pocket and brought out a beautiful stethoscope engraved with his name. A patient gave me this, he said, obviously moved. I smiled at him. And what do you do with that, Josh? I asked him. He looked at me puzzled for a moment. Then he laughed out loud. I listen to heart, Rachel. I listen to heart. It's a wonderful practice considering our virtues. Going back, and we can do this tonight before you go to sleep. Take a moment and contemplate what you did today, the efforts that you made in honor of your own purification, the times that you brought yourself back, the effort you made in walking, or the, the time that you stood in line when the food was being served and you brought yourself back to the, the experience. Contemplating all those efforts the virtue of those efforts and the healing that it brings. Several nights ago, I couldn't sleep, and um, I'd gone through all my usual things of how to get myself to sleep, and it was about 3 a.m. in the morning, and I remembered this contemplation. And so I, I had been at Tamales Bay, which is just north of San Francisco, for a number of days, and the high tide left these beautiful jellyfish on the beach, and they were all dying. And my first thought was, this is nature arena, just let go. But then I carefully got two sticks and took all the jellyfish mm -hmm. and put them back in the ocean, hoping that they would um, live. And so that night I contemplated, I thought about each saving each life of, of those jellyfish. And it was such a lovely contemplation that I went to sleep. <laughs> so. Um, really beautiful. It's really a beautiful contemplation. And like contemplating our virtue, the next um, invitation to cultivating joy is contemplating our generosity. Any act of generosity. Uh, it could be a little one for some. I think some of you have heard me talk about how my practice of generosity was when I filled up glasses of special juice or ginger beer I would always give my partner the glass with more juice or ginger beer. 
something as little as that, or maybe something larger, just a friend of ours or a parent who's sick and dying, and the incredible um, effort that um, that we made in in um, being at their side. Um, a wonderful cult uh, wonderful cultivation is um, contemplating creating the conditions for the Dharma. I know many of you have worked a lot in order for this retreat to happen. Contemplating all those efforts and the incredible generosity and the blessings of that generosity in what you um, um, brought forth through your efforts. So thinking about your own generosity. The seventh one is considering the virtue of the gods. I'm not going to go into that one too much because that's um, um, a, a little more specifically cultural to Buddhists who uh, know a lot of the sutras. But um, the eighth one is contemplating the mind of the Buddha. What would it be like? Can you just take a moment right now and think, what would it be like for our minds to become perfectly peaceful? Perfectly at peace. And that there was a mind who was perfectly at peace and contemplating that. Perfectly at peace. So beautiful. It's just it's the, the ex expression of perfection of a human being, perfectly at peace. The ninth one is really lovely. It's avoiding people who are overwhelmed with anger. The tenth is reflecting on the teachings of the Buddha in, in his suttas, buying, buying the the suttas, the middle-length things, the long discourses, the short discourses, and reading them, contemplating them. And lastly, but we could say also all teachings. It isn't just the Buddha, but contemplating all teachings. That's good. I contemplate not just Buddha's teachings. And lastly, inclining our minds towards rapture. Just having that intention every day. I intend to cultivate rapture, I incline my mind or create the conditions for rapture to come into being. Or we could say, may, may the conditions for rapture come into being. Just, just that one sentence every day. Uh, um, some of you have heard this, but I love to read it, so I want to read it. Um, the Sorbonne confers the title of Dr. Honoris Causa on Darcy Ribeiro. He accepts, he says, on the merit of his failures. Darcy has failed as an anthropologist because the Indians of Brazil are still being annihilated. He has failed as rector of the university because the reality he wanted it to transform proved obdurate. He has failed as Minister of Education in a country where illiteracy never stops multiplying. He has failed as a member of a government that tried and failed either to make agrarian reform or to control the habits of foreign capital. He has failed as a writer 
who dreamed of forbidding history to repeat itself. These are his failures, and these are his dignities. Often, when we think about the virtues in, cult in contemplating joy, we don't think of our failures, but our failures are included. We might think, I can't count the last meditation because I was so sleepy and I went to sleep and I didn't even get one breath and it was a waste of time. But actually, our failures are also our successes because, because we made the effort and we can contemplate that too. Just because we made the effort, it becomes the conditions for rapturous joy to arise. So let's take a moment and sit together. if you would like to take these next moments to contemplate your virtues. May we each remember to see again the beauty that we are, the virtues, the generosity, the perseverance, the truthfulness, the kindness. May we come to acknowledge these qualities inside of ourselves so that they become the conditions for rapturous joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.